Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Everybody Blurts. Each week we chat to a different expert, giving the professional lowdown on depression, well-being and support available. Think of this podcast as a helping hand through the often scary world of mental health. From eating well and getting good night's sleep to being there for someone who's struggling. We'll cover the practical stuff as well as the emotional. So settle down with a cuppa and let's get started. Welcome to episode 8 of the Everybody Blurts podcast. Today I have the pleasure of being joined by Dr Guy Winch who is here to talk about emotional well-being. The way we talk about and treat our physical health is far removed from how we talk about and treat our emotional health. Today we'll be exploring why that is and how we might address it. Hi Guy, how are you? Um, well, thank you for having your podcast. Thank you for being here. I'm looking forward to speaking to you today. Could you please give us an introduction into your background? Uh, yeah, I'm a clinical psychologist. I have a private practice in uh, New York City where I live. I'm also an author. Uh, I wrote a couple of books, the most recent of which is called Emotional First Aid, Healing, uh, Rejection, Failure, Guilt, and Other Everyday Hurts. And I also blog for psychologytoday.com, and I do some speaking as well. Um, I'm really, really interested to talk to you about this because I've noticed that through my work with Blurt, but also as somebody who struggles with depression, um, that people are a lot more happy to talk about things that might be physically physical injuries rather than how they are emotionally. Um, why do you think that is? I think in general there's a big bias and a big stigma still attached to any kind of uh, mental disorders or emotional disorders. And I think that people are just fundamentally uncomfortable with things they don't fully understand. You know, depression, unfortunately, is invisible. A broken arm is not. So people see something concrete, oh, look, that arm is broken, that person must be wounded but they see somebody being sad or being withdrawn and even if they know they're depressed they don't quite know why or what that is exactly they don't know how to respond they don't know what to do what not to do so there's so much catch-up we need to do still in terms of our emotional awareness and that to to make things equal how can we perform emotional first aid on ourselves Well, first of all, I I really begin with awareness because even people with depression and even people with depression who have read a bit about it or who who are somewhat educated about it, I still find have habits like we all do, which are actually very damaging to their emotional health. In other words, the negative kind of thinking, the self-criticism, the, you know, really depression is often associated with somebody being very harsh with themselves, having this internal voice which is very punitive and very damaging and the kind of internal voice they would never, uh, the kind of language they would never use with someone else. They would never tell someone else, oh no, you're a loser, you're such a nothing. But they would say that to themselves because they're feeling so down and they're feeling uh, perhaps. But so even if they have the awareness that you have to be self-compassionate, that you want to be building yourself up as much as possible, it's very difficult because we don't really teach people this at a young enough age or at an age in which they can really take it in as, wow, I really have to change my thinking, I really have to change how I'm treating myself as a very, very first step to, to making myself better. How do you think that we can even begin to teach that to to ourselves and to our children? So in part, you know, I did this TED talk, as you mentioned, and, you know, TED has a very wide and global audience, uh, which I'm very grateful for. And when I when I had the opportunity to do the talk, I wanted to do it in a way that really got people just to start thinking and being aware of, isn't there a huge discrepancy between how we treat our physical wounds and how we treat our emotional wounds? We know exactly what to do with cuts and scrapes and colds and, and, and sprains. 
we actually don't even know when we're injured emotionally, let, let alone what to do about it. So major, major catch-up to be done. And I think that being aware that um, how we uh, treat ourselves, how we think of things, being aware of uh, you know, when something happens to us, when we experience a failure, for example, you didn't get a promotion at work, your birthday came and a, and a good friend forgot to call, you know, these, these, these daily kinds of life experiences we all have but can really put us in a bad mood and hurt our feelings and that to know that when something like that happens, you need to treat it the same as you would if you were riding a bicycle and you fell off. If you fell off your bike, the first thing you would do was, let me check to see if I didn't injure myself. Let me check my arms and my chest and my legs and make sure I didn't damage something. It's the same with an emotional wound. If something happens that, that, that's painful emotionally in any way, you need to pause and think, okay, let's see what happened. Let's see how and where I'm hurting. Let's see what I can do about it, rather than just go home, not want to talk about it, and reach for a drink, or go to the pub, or reach for food, you know, actually check yourself, and, and then try and identify where you're injured, and try and find out ways you can address those injuries. Can you give us some examples of what emotional wounds might be? Yes, yeah, so for example, we know that with failure, for example, and this can be big failures and small. It can be a startup that didn't get funding. It can be, like I said earlier, when you don't get a promotion at work. It can be you, you failed a test in, in college or university or school or in any, any kind of failure, really. Um, you have to understand that when we experience that kind of thing, it actually impacts us more than just the disappointment, more than just perhaps a blow to our self-esteem. It actually changes our perceptions. We have studies that show, demonstrate very, very vividly that when people, I'll just give you an example of one. They asked uh, people to kick um, an American football um, over a goalpost from an unmarked field. Um, and they all stood at the line and did 10 kicks. And then they asked them to estimate, well, how far away is that goalpost and how high up is it? And the people who succeeded in their kicks estimated the goalpost much more accurately, while those who didn't succeed estimated to be much further away and much higher up, in other words, much harder. So failing at the task actually distorted their visual perceptions to make their goals seem further away and more difficult to attain. And that's actually what happens metaphorically. When we fail at something, we immediately view the task as being more difficult, and we immediately view our own abilities as being less up to the task. And then that's going to affect, unless we correct it, how we feel about trying again, how we feel about going forward, how we feel about our own abilities and whether it's worthwhile to invest in, a, in another round. And and if we're not aware that there's a distortion there, if we actually listen to the voice inside our head that's saying, ah, oh, you know, you can't do this, just give up. If we listen to that, we'll miss out on so many things in life. And many of us do. Um, so that's an example of an emotional wound. So if, if you've realized that that's a wound, how would you go about um, tending to it? Exactly. And so, look, when I wrote my book, I divided each uh, chapter into a topic. So, for example, since we're talking about failure, the, the chapters are laid out in the same way. It starts with describing what the wounds are that we sustain emotionally and psychologically when we uh, experience a failure, let's say in this example. And then in the second part of the chapters are the treatments that you can use to address each of those wounds. So one of the things, for example, that happens with failure is that we tend to feel that things are out of our control. We tend to feel, well, you know, that goalpost is just too far away, so I can't 
meet it or my, my, my hand-leg coordination is just not good enough so I couldn't possibly kick it that way or in, uh, in real life you know the boss doesn't like me that much they'll never promote me or you know I'm not a great pitch person so I'll never secure funding for my startup or you know I hate math and so I will never pass the math test um, but when we feel that way we're actually not looking at what we can control what we can do to uh, be more successful and so for example if people to think about well you know if my boss doesn't like me maybe goal number one should be get to know the boss more get the boss to like me and then the promotion will come more easily or if I'm really anxious about math how can I approach this test differently than I did the last time do I need extra tutoring do I need to go to the professor's office hours do I need to study with a friend who does well in other words if you start to look at failures as holding the actual uh, recipe for success then you can really look at them rather than a demoralizing unfortunate thing as something that's useful because the good part of it is that we, we don't make a thousand mistakes in our lives. We typically make two or three, and then we repeat them in endless varieties. So the same thing is going to be tripping you up. The same thing that got you focused on your job at work, because you're a purist at heart, and you believe, well, you know, good work should be rewarded. I don't have to do all that, you know, politicking and all that, you know, uh, kissing up um, but that's a little bit naive in any job you have to do a little bit of kissing up unfortunately that's just life but that kind of principled approach is going to hold you back in all kinds of different uh, ways you know you're going to be um, uh, uh, right instead of wise and it's always better to be wise rather than just correct and so you know once you start catching where your blind spots are the what are the mistakes you tend to make in certain arenas you will find that they generalize to other arenas as well and so failure is your best opportunity to actually examine and catch the typical mistakes you tend to make so that you can actually try and fix them in the most general sense once and for all and not only ensure success in that specific endeavor but probably in others as well i know from my own personal experience that when i have made a what I deem to be a failure, you know, some, I feel like I failed at something, um, that I will tend to beat myself up and blame myself. Um, and I guess from what you've just said, that's actually just making the wound a lot worse and harder to mend. It's, it's exactly correct. It's making the wound worse. It makes it harder to mend. But to me, most of the, the, the biggest shame is that you're actually not learning anything um, from it. You know, I'm, I, I wrote for many years before I published my first book. And when I mean write, I mean fruitlessly. In other, in other words, I, I wrote many, many things. None of them got published. None of them, you know, I ne never made a penny from them. Uh, literally over 10 years worth of that. Now, I really enjoyed writing. And so every time I, I, I failed, I looked at it and I said, all right, what do I need to do differently? And what kind of maybe I need to write about different things. Maybe I, you know, and at some point I did, did figure it out. And, and, and then what, when I did, well, then the doors opened and then I sold my first book and then I sold my second book and I'm working on a third. And, but it was persistence that allowed me to get there. I had many, many opportunities to give up along the way and many people do actually give up. But my feeling was I was pretty certain that I would not be the worst writer out there. And I think that's a great example because I think most people could say that, right? I'm pretty certain I won't be the worst blank at this. And so to me, it means so if other people can publish and they're not as good writers as I am, even if I'm not the best, then if it's just about figuring out how to get there, it's figuring out the topic, figuring out how to get it in front of the right people. 
And that's my approach in life in general. In other words, if something doesn't work, if the door doesn't open, find another door, find a toolkit in which you can open the door, find the secret sesame, you know, abracadabra spell that will, uh, open sesame spell that will open the door. But, but think of it that way as opposed to, oh, well, I can't do this. There are very few things we can't do. And I completely agree with all of that. I think that the problem can be sometimes is that when you have depression, your view on the world can be a little bit distorted anyway. And um, you can not be, you can, you're not at your most rational or logical. Um, so how do you get from that state where you're, you know, you might be feeling a bit paranoid, you might be beating yourself up without, you know, without even actually being really conscious of how damaging to yourself you're being. How do you get from there I suppose I'm asking, how do you build emotional resilience and maintain it through those difficult times? Right. Okay, so now let's look at the analogy, for example. So let's say you, you've injured your leg and, and, and you're limping, and you have to get somewhere. So when you have depression, you're essentially limping. You're, you're not at your best. You're, uh, we know depression affects your mood. It affects your ability to use your intelligence. It affects your perceptions. It certainly affects your motivation. You're limping, if not worse you know um but when you're limping you're not going to then assume oh i'm just going to rush over there you're going to say to yourself all right i'm a little injured here so i need to walk slowly i need to make sure how i'm doing the fact that other people will be passing me because i'm walking slowly is okay i'm injured so i'm not going to worry that other people are walking more quickly i'm injured at the moment i'll heal at some point i'll be able to speed up but at the moment this is as fast as i can walk so let me set correct expectations for that and oh I've walked a bit today now my leg is hurting now I'm going to allow myself to rest for a bit and I'm going to do a little bit more tomorrow in other words you really it's about being compassionate to yourself and realizing my motivation is going to be low my self-esteem is going to be low my confidence is going to be low so let's not set impossible goals but let's set reasonable ones let's actually set the small steps that I can make because those small steps will actually make a big difference when you're depressed. Um, you know, doing a little bit, allowing yourself to do a little bit and feeling that that little bit is actually a lot given how I'm feeling and feeling really good for having done the little because it is a lot. Um, that's how you slowly build yourself up again. The resilience has two steps. It's about building on the one hand and not destroying the other. So being self-compassionate, setting small, moderate goals in which you're fully aware that, yes, I'm in a bad state at the moment, it doesn't mean I'm totally paralyzed. It doesn't mean I'm totally incapacitated. I can always do something small. And figuring out what that is and being pleased with yourself when you're able to do that small thing. And if you're not, maybe it needs to be smaller. But as long as you're moving forward, even an inch at a time, you will feel better for it and you will get over your depression more quickly. That's really going to be reassuring for a lot of people. And I know that's actually how I have managed to manage how I feel um, by making the teeniest steps, which compounded over a long time. And the one thing I was really interested in to ask was, can our, can our emotional well-being affect our physical state? Actually, all the time. Um, and, and very, very uh, much so. Um, I'm going to give you the most general example possible because uh, from there you can really extrapolate anything. Um, we know, for example, that when we're thinking of physical pain, physical pain, um, it has two components. It has the, um, the physical pain component and it has the emotional distress component about being aware that you're in physical pain. 
In other words, when, you know, when, when you're about to go to the doctor and get an injection, and let's say you're afraid of needles, what's going to make that needle pinch much more is not the actual uh, needle penetrating the skin, but your anticipation and worry and distress about the fact that it is. So we know that that emotional distress component exacerbates pain tremendously. People who suffer from chronic pain are often given antidepressants for that reason, and they're often sent to support groups because they need to manage the emotional component of the pain. It literally takes away a big chunk of it. Now, that's true in the most general sense of the word, but our emotions impact our physical health in every possible way. Whenever you feel stressed, you're releasing uh, cortisol and other stress hormones into your blood. We know, for example, just using the example of loneliness, I have a chapter on loneliness in the book, because we know that the uh, life expectancy for people who are chronically lonely is actually diminished, that it will shave years of their life and that it will be as uh, much of a risk factor for their physical health as cigarette smoking will be because loneliness actually suppresses the immune system Uh, and the minute you feel lonely it starts suppressing your immune system so when you're feeling lonely for and chronically over extended periods of time um, you really have a compromised immune system because you your body feels like it's under attack emotionally but then also physically. So you're more susceptible to all kinds of diseases, to coronary heart disease, to all kinds of illnesses and diseases, really. There's even one study that showed that when college students got their first flu shots when they joined college and were filling out questionnaires about whether they were feeling lonely because they had just left home, uh, the students who uh, noted that they felt lonely had a poorer reaction to the flu shot. Their immune systems handled it less well. Um, And even though they were just a few weeks in college, but that was already happening. So there are so many ways in which our emotions and how we think and how we feel truly impact our physical selves. Um, The the separation is an arbitrary one in a way. I mean, it's there, obviously, but it's very much a two-way street. That's actually really frightening that loneliness can impact you that way because I know that so many people who will be listening will be feeling lonely because that's one of, you know, depression and you withdraw from those closest to you. You can feel really lonely even with those people that are, who are your most favorite people because you, you're struggling with this illness that's affecting how you feel and how you interact with others. And so that's actually really, um, it's really interesting, but also really frightening to think that loneliness has such an impact. And so how would somebody who was feeling really, really lonely um, go about in, you know, dealing with that because you do feel you start I think that I've found and from the people that we speak to that um when you're feeling that lonely you start to feel really anxious about mingling with other people and getting yourself back into society and right. you don't feel you feel frightened to reach out for others for fear of rejection and right well so many so many reasons and I and it can just build the isolation and actually that's quite often what why people take their own lives because they just feel so isolated and alone in what they're dealing with to me um you know when if if you had a good friend and you saw them you know going through two packs of cigarettes a day if this was you know your spouse your family member you would be on them all the time you really have to stop smoking you really have to stop smoking we're not alarmed when we see somebody lonely we're not alarmed when we're lonely We, we feel like you know like really badly but we're not alarmed about oh what is this doing to my health to my longevity and we should be and again I, part of my message is let's be so much more aware 
Um, and, and again, isn't it really tragic that we're not aware? Isn't it tragic that this kind of information, which has been established scientifically for years now, you know, years, and no one knows about it? How is it that loneliness can strike, I don't know, I think it's something like almost 30% of the people will experience it in their lifetime, 40% of people, a huge proportion of the population, and yet no one knows what it does. How did we not get it, that information out there? So to me, again, it's part of the general outrage I feel about how do we know so little about this when the information is there. But that aside for a moment, um, I'm saying this, and I realize it might be alarming to people who are feeling depressed and then isolated, because part of what happens actually when you're depressed is that it, it kind of sucks all the uh, interest, pleasure, enjoyment, emotion out of things. And so, yes, you have relationships, you have friendships, but they just don't seem that interesting, that stimulating. It feels like a lot of work to maintain them. Um, and, you know, you just don't have that much energy, so I'd rather just do it and just get through, you know, Getting out of bed and brushing my teeth takes a lot. I'm not, you know, start calling people and saying, hey, how are you? When I'm feeling horrible is not going to be something I can do. I'm saying this, though, because of two things. First of all, it's important that people realize that actually there is, you know, you need to take action here. This is a, a more complicated, more dangerous situation, potentially, than you might have realized. But secondly, um, depression does distort our perceptions. It makes us feel very um, unappealing and very hopeless about things. And so, yes, we got invited to a party, but we'll feel like, I don't really know the people that well. No one will really talk to me. I'll have a terrible time. Why go? And the problem is that some people then will not go, which is a missed opportunity, um, because in my experience, it's going to be very, very difficult to get yourself there. Once you're there, it won't be that terrible. Uh, because you're going to be distracted. You're going to, you know, people are going to talk to you, and that's distracting, and so it won't be that terrible. But the second thing is that some people will actually get there and be so pessimistic, they'll have worked themselves into such a state of this is going to be terrible, that they'll end up standing in the corner and scowling at people, and then feeling, you see, no one wants to talk to me, even though they don't realize the vibe they're putting out is terrible. And so you have to be aware that when you're lonely, you are putting out a certain negative vibe, because that's how you're feeling, because you're afraid of being rejected, because your experience is that the world is harsh at the moment. But that you, if you're going to socialize, you have to take a very deep breath and, and yes, put on a little bit of an act. And that's okay to put on a little bit of an act, because your brain won't necessarily know you're putting on an act. So when you're standing there and smiling, your brain will start to function a little bit like you're not depressed. And then if you're actually socializing with people, it'll be a nice uh, a break for your brain because it'll kind of almost confuse your brain. Hey, wait, I thought I was depressed. Why am I here chatting with all these people? It will do something good for you, however difficult it is to get yourself um, to that spot. And, it's, and I know how difficult it is to see opportunities when you're lonely. And I'll give you one example. I was doing an interview for a, uh, a radio station here in the, in the States. And they, they were a big radio station. They had a big Facebook following, and they had people uh, write in questions uh, to the Facebook page, and then they were reading me the questions from the Facebook page. And they read me the question from this one man who said, um, I'm not sure the doctor understands that it's very difficult for someone like me to even find people who feel as depressed and as lonely as I do. And when they read me that question, I said, yes, but you know, whoever the gentleman is who wrote that, they wrote it on a Facebook page with their name, and with, uh, as I was told, another 150 people who feel actually exactly like you, who wrote in. Each one of them you can actually send a message to at the moment, because there they are on the page, which he saw because he added a question to a page of many, many questions. So he added a question to a page of people who felt just like him, 
And his question was, there are no people I meet who feel just like me. Because that's the blindness that happens when we're lonely. We just don't see the opportunities before us. And the fear of rejection, I guess, adds to that. You, you, if you, when you feel unworthy yes. and as though you're, you don't like yourself, you don't think that anybody else is going to like you either. Um, right, but then you're that. on that page. If you put a message on that page saying, yeah. hey, if anyone is in this area and wants to talk a little bit more or chat a little bit more about this, please message me. Somebody will, or somebody won't, but, but, you, but it's certainly that you don't have any opportunity to meet, you know what I mean? And so um, the message here really is that, you know, you, you really have to, once you know that there's a certain distortion going on, then you can correct for it. Every time I got a rejection letter for one of my earlier writing efforts, my response to it was as follows, and this was my, literally my strategy to, to keep me through. I gave myself the rest of the day to feel bad about it. That was it. The next morning... I started a new project, or I continued working one if there was one already. In other words, and I forced myself to do that, because my, the, the message there was, yes, you get to feel bad for a bit, but then move on. Do the thing that's going to be best for you, however much you don't feel like it, or you're worried about it, or it feels like, what's the point? And whenever I did that, and I just gave myself an hour, just to do an hour's worth of work at least, after that hour, I always felt a little bit more empowered. I always felt that things were a little bit more in my control. I always felt a little bit more hopeful. So it's very difficult to push yourself when you're feeling depressed, when you're feeling lonely. It's very difficult to acknowledge that the way I'm seeing things is probably not accurate. But it's so important to know that and push yourself despite it. I think that's actually the most difficult thing, um, is to realize that actually your view on how things are is distorted is 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 a little bit warped because you're unwell and I think that's actually the most difficult thing because your brain it's almost like your brain's playing tricks on you isn't it is that's it's sort of telling you that that's fact that's how it is but actually it isn't and when you're lonely you don't have anyone to challenge that perception but when you do interact with other people actually that's what's so great about it is because you get to see their perception of you as a person and of the world and so I think that that's what I find healthy when I know that I'm feeling really lonely and isolated I can feel that I've withdrawn from people I do the same I make myself interact with someone <laughs> somewhere just so that I can get that different perception of life right so important and you know in my TED talk if people uh, look it up on TED.com um, I'll put the links in the show oh, notes brilliant. below that's great but, but you know I, I, as, as you know because you've seen it I speak about uh, an episode in my life in which I was feeling extremely lonely and how it distorted my own perceptions and the not rude awakening but the big awakening I had when I realized I, oh my goodness that was so distorted on my part and I just wasn't seeing it and I, and I give that example I won't give it away because I want people to be able to to see it fresh, but, but um, I, I certainly understand how strongly those perceptions can, can, can seem very, very real and how difficult it is to challenge them. But once you know it, then you can. That's all for this episode of Everybody Blurts. We hope you found it interesting, thought-provoking and maybe a bit useful too. We're here every week for open, honest discussions about mental health and we'd love you to join us again. Make sure you subscribe via iTunes so you don't miss us. See you next time.